As we continue in this series of sermons from this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we call in our Bibles 1 Corinthians, I invite you with me to turn to the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage that has been called the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. Well, I don't know uh, about all of that, but um, I do know that this is one of the most widely recognized passages of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 shows up all over the place, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's printed on plates that adorn the walls of uh, dining rooms. You find it on wedding uh, invitations, on greeting cards, on t-shirts, on plaques, on rings, on bracelets, and tattoos. I thought for the fun of it, I would look up on Google Images how many places 1 Corinthians 13 shows up. You'll be surprised how many people are wearing 1 Corinthians. Uh, Eddie Garcia has seen it at the doctor's office, apparently, wearing 1 Corinthians 13 all over their bodies. Uh, It's on napkins, for crying out loud, on blankets. You might remember Robert De Niro, um, you know, pop culture I'm thinking of, movies and books. You might remember Robert De Niro's uh, very touching read through First uh, um, Corinthians 13 in, his, uh, in the movie and that wonderful film, The Mission. Today we take up the first three verses of First Corinthians 13 in their context. So we're going to read the entire chapter uh, after we pray. Father in heaven, what marvelous things we find in your law. Some of them are are very hard to receive, and to be sure there's some serious correction for us to receive from this passage too. But uh, what more beautiful thing to consider than love, this great gift that you've given to us that we are even capable of love, especially after sin entered the world, that you did not remove this from us, indeed, Instead, you showed us even more the greatness of your love for us, calling from us love for you and one another. So in love, Father, we ask that you will lovingly apply your word to us, to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, If I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I said before the reading that this passage is found all over the place, but it does not mean, therefore, that it is universally understood. Shredded from its context, a scripture passage can be caused to mean whatever one wants it to mean. And too often, this chapter has been schmoozed into all sorts of warm fuzzies and mushy sentimentalism. Paul's love chapter, so-called, as it's come to be called, has been subject to an inordinate number of abuses. Thomas Merton, in his book, The Seven-Story Mountain, describes the chaplain of an English boarding school giving a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. According to Merton, this chaplain's interpretation of the word love, or charity, in the King James Version, was that it uh, simply stood for all that we mean uh, by a good gentleman. Charity means good sportsmanship, doing the decent thing, wearing the right kind of clothes, using the proper spoon, and never being a cad. He writes, quote, There he stood in the plain pulpit and raised his chin above the rows of boys in black coats and said, One might go through this chapter by St. Paul and simply substitute the word gentleman for charity wherever it occurs. If I talk with the tongues of men and angels and be not a gentleman, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. A gentleman is patient and kind. A gentleman envieth not. Dealeth not perversely, is not puffed up. A gentleman never falleth away. Merton observes that the apostles would have been rather surprised at the concept that Christ had been scourged and beaten by soldiers, cursed and crowned with thorns and subjected to unutterable contempt and finally nailed to the cross and left to bleed to death in order that we might all become gentlemen. 
That's why it's so important that 1 Corinthians 13 be read in its context as we're doing this morning. We know where we've been in this letter, don't we? We know the sin that Paul has been addressing, the sin uh, behind all their sins, their factions, their divisions, their suing each other and sleeping with each other and and, uh, arguing between each other and their competition over their spiritual gifts and who's more important and who's least. That sin of sins behind it all was selfishness. Selfishness. And that same sin can still be found in the, in the church and behind the sins in the church today. Having seen up close a few of the difficulties that churches face as a participant in dealing with those conflicts in our Presbyterian churches, not to mention a couple of our own over the years, I can with some confidence say to you that somewhere beneath or behind and woven all through these conflicts in the church is selfishness. Whether or not they start that way, and most of them do, selfishness always finds its way into these fights and divisions and struggles that, so that every squabble in the church soon becomes entirely saturated with self. Suddenly whole churches, regardless of their musical ability, become choirs singing in cacophony. Me, 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 me. It's into that din of discord, that uh, that cacophonous competition over significance and importance in the community church of Corinth that Paul drops this corrective chapter. Essentially, he says to them, and he says to us here this morning, and always as a church, by the way, may we always be 1 Corinthians 13 churches. I say what he says to us is what you need above everything else. Is love. And without love, you can have your gifts. You can keep your gifts to yourself. You can, you can uh, you know, quit the competition over which one of you is more important or which one's less important. All. In fact, you might as well just close up your doors. But what is love? What is this, this essential ingredient, this most important thing, without which the entire recipe is a disaster? How do we define love? Well, you know the popular conceptions of love, don't you? You've heard of falling in love and feeling love. And you've heard Elvis crooning about, I can't help but fall in love with you. Love, we're told, comes and goes. It waxes and wanes. Listen to this definition. This is a professional definition of love supplied to us by psychology today. Love is a force of nature. However much we want to, we cannot command, demand, or take away any love any more than we can command the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain to come and go according to our whims. Love is bigger than you are. You cannot, you can invite love, but you cannot dictate how, when, and where love expresses itself. You can choose to surrender to love or not, but in the end, 
Love strikes like lightning, unpredictable and irrefutable. Love is its own law. Well, no wonder there's so much confusion about love when our supposedly brightest and best can only stumble and bumble their way back and forth and all over a true understanding of love. Whatever may or may not be true in the middle of that statement, it is sandwiched in silliness. Love, a force of nature? Love, a law unto itself? At the risk of sounding very unromantic, let me tell you that love is more an act of the will than a feeling of the heart. The late John Stott put it this way wonderfully. He said that Christian love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. Christian love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. You know that, don't you? You who have loved truly and been loved. You know how loving others, even within this congregation, cannot possibly be based on feelings. Cannot live or die, at least, by our feelings. Families know this. Parents know this. Children know this. Siblings know this for each other. Love is not a feeling. It cannot be, because feelings come and go. Love is an act of our will. We love on purpose. We love deliberately. You wives know this. Mine does. That loving your husband is sometimes much less a matter of desire than of sheer determination. Even the word Paul uses here for love bespeaks love that it's not so much a matter of attraction or coziness or natural affection. It is a vibrant, strong, deliberate, may I, may I say it this way, it is a masculine thing. It is a strong work. There are several words for love in the Bible. It, uh, this word is the word agape. And it it's, wasn't very a common word in the culture of Paul's day, but it, but it was brought into the Bible, the word agape, because, because there was not a common word in use that was suitable to express the love of God in Christ. God's love, uh, David Pryor writes, it completely transcends all human ideas and expressions of love. It is love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from God, who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they're worthy of love or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness of the beloved. Do you get that? It comes based on the lover, not on the attractiveness of the one who's loved. 
the only thing that can explain this, that can explain the appearance of God, the Son, in human flesh on the earth that we celebrate this season. What could possibly have compelled God to send his own Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save us who believe in him? What made you and me so attractive to him that he would be willing to come to earth to be born, to be laid in a manger, to, to live life in this fallen world and to die so unspeakably a horrific death. Not only physically, good grief, it hardly even touches the agony of the cross under all the wrath of God for you and for me. What, what possessed him? Look at us. Look, look at us. What, what, what possibly could compel him about you and me to do such a thing as this? To die, it could only have been love. Only love drove him. Love compelled him to lay down his life for us. Greater love, the scripture says, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Yes, but we were not his friends, were we? We were his enemies. And he laid down his life for us. To make us his friends. He loved us. No wonder then that love must be the essential ingredient for a healthy and truly vibrant Christian church's life. A church may have many gifts. A church may be stocked with, with all sorts of gifted People from wall to wall, there may be remarkable gifts in a congregation manifested in, in remarkable ways, even miraculous. But without love, nothing. Paul says it in three different ways in these verses to make the point perfectly clear. First, he writes, without love, we're nothing more than a nuisance. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I am not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. It goes right to the jugular here, doesn't he, of the proud Christians in Corinth. Tongue speaking, whatever that means, and everybody wants to debate it, was apparently a premium gift in Corinth. Those who could speak in tongues, apparently some miraculous speaking or maybe some earthly language, the tongues of men. Paul writes, or, or maybe some heavenly tongue, that of angels. They were admired. You know, they were the, they were the t cream of the crop. They were the, they were the admirable Christians. The high esteem, highly esteemed. Probably nowhere, of course, were those Christians esteemed more than in their own hearts. Paul has something to say about the gift of tongues in chapter 12. He has more to say in chapter 14. His constant plea in chapter 14, as we'll see, the Lord willing, will be along the lines of what he had to say back in, in chapter 8 of this book. Remember where he said that? Love builds up. Let everything be for the building up, for the edification of the church. He apparently doesn't really give a, a wit about you know, tongue speaking in this 
And this, uh, he certainly doesn't give the pride of place to tongue speaking that the Corinthian Christians did and that some Christians do today in certain circles where it's even become considered as the sign of true and genuine spiritual life, a distinguishing mark of Christianity. But Paul's point is that you, you can speak in all manner of tongues. You can speak in all, you know, all the languages of men. You can speak the language of heaven. You can speak angels' language. But if you don't have love... You're just a nuisance. You're just a pain in the neck. You're, you're, you're making my, my ears raw with your racket. You're just making noise, and you're making the worst kind of noise there is. A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. I'll throw in uh, for free that many commentators find that, uh, that he may be making a reference to the Greek mystery cults here at Corinth who would worship their gods by banging on gongs and, you know, clashing symbols and going through the streets doing so to, to rouse the worshipers and rouse the gods. And can you imagine what an what a irritating sound that must have been? A few years ago, Debbie and I watched a video about some Tibetan pilgrimage to a mountaintop. And as long as you had the sound down, the, the colors were gorgeous. So the, the flags on, on strings and the, the makeshift temple that they had built, the tabernacle up on the mountain. But then when you turn the sound up, it just became absolutely irritating. Bang, bang, bang on, on gongs and bowls. It was a racket. It was monotonous. It was lacking in any melody whatsoever. That's what Paul says, that a church... Uh, full of tongue speaking, but lacking love is like it's a bunch of irritating racket. Even eloquent speech we might put under here. Even a preacher who's got the golden tongue, teachers who can teach lessons that uh, just leave their listeners struck with their, their great talent and grasp of language and ability to make a point and all the rhetorical devices and all the rest. Bang, 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 bang. That's all it is. If there is not love. Second, he says that all the gifts without love is nothing. Now notice the word he uses there. He, Paul chooses the words carefully. Nothing. Nothing is not a little something. You know, nothing is not a pretty good start, but uh, incomplete. Nothing is nothing. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. You may be impressive in your knowledge, my brothers or sisters. You may have great knowledge. People may flock around you to hang on every word that falls from your lips. You may have great insights into the scriptures. You may understand things that only God could reveal. That's what mysteries are in the Bible, things that are hidden and that are revealed by God. You may have great faith, great faith that moves mountains. Now, literally, of course, but it's an expression. You know that. It's a Jewish expression for the greatness of faith. It's figurative language, but you may have all of that, all of it, but a loveless Christian, no matter how much he knows, is nothing before God and nothing of real use to people. 
Now, surely Paul is speaking in hyperbole here, right? I mean, he's got to be exaggerating to make his point. Maybe what he means is that the prophecies and the knowledge and the faith are, you know, they're of diminished value. They're not quite all that they could be without love. But that's not what he says. He says nothing. You may enjoy all the admiration and adulation of the people of God, but what good is that? A couple of years ago, we witnessed the fall of yet another well-known evangelical preacher. His fame was nationwide. The megachurch that had sprung into a multi-campus operation into which his image and his sermons were piped by television to all of these congregations. I say all of this was admired by Christians all over America. A mighty model of Christian growth to emulate. Now, he was controversial, of course. He uh, had a sharp tongue. Uh, but his preaching was relevant. And that's what made him so popular. At least such people said about his preaching. And his strongly worded conservative stands on the social and moral issues of the day attracted many from pulpit to, few, to pew. He was sought out nationally as a speaker. His books were on the bestsellers lists. It wasn't the typical scandal of sex or money that proves to be the undoing of so many pastors today that caused his fall and the subsequent implosion of this um, what had become a mini empire in Christendom in America. It wasn't any of that. It was his abusive treatment of people. He was caustic to his parishioners and undercutting of the church's leadership. He was full of bluster and bravado and sought to use those to ram his conservative theological points forward. Many, I'd say, found his style very attractive. Thousands, thousands of people flocked around this minister, but it all backfired. What happened? Well, there are many individual events and decisions and actions to which we might point, but perhaps the most insightful observation was offered by a Lifeway a project manager and researcher named Lizette Beard. I don't care who you are or how big your church or ministry is, she wrote. Nobody gets a pass on the fruit of the Spirit. Nobody gets a pass on the fruit of the Spirit. It's what we prayed for this morning in our confession of sin, isn't it? That we would bear more and more the fruit of the Spirit. And what do we know about the fruit of the Spirit? What's the very first fruit of the Spirit? Love, yes. Love is the very first. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self You know the list. Nobody gets a pass on love. No matter how great their works, no matter how impressive, which brings me to the third point. Without love, we are a nuisance. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, whatever we say, whatever we know, whatever we do, third, 
we gain nothing. And lest we miss the point, Paul adds an exclamation point now to his, his, his verses here. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. What could be more impressive and, and more important? I mean, who would impress you more than a Christian who just decided one day, I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to sell the house, the cars. I'm going to keep a couple sets of clothes. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to give it all away. Wouldn't you be impressed? Wouldn't you be impressed if someone went all the way to martyrdom, all the way to the the stake to be burned to death? Surely, surely there's some merit in that. Not one ounce, says Paul. Nothing. Without love, nothing at all. Nada. Here's what it comes down to, dear flock. What's your motive? What is your motive? What is my, what's my motive for standing here and preaching right now? Oh, my heart is a liar. What's your motive for your teaching, for your good works, for your work as an elder, for your work as a deacon, for your work in the, in the, within the church here, whatever it is? Why do you give? Why do you put what you do in the offering plate? You know, God is not interested in all of our work He's totally unimpressed by the numbers, by the results. He's not looking for churches full of gifted and impressive and talented people. He's not even impressed by the sharpest theological skills and doctrinal acumen that we might uh, produce. He's looking for churches where Christians love each other. Those are the churches that are useful to him. Those are the churches that glorify him. Those are the churches to which even the world can look and say, my, my, those are Christians. I know it because they love each other. I want to end with some encouragement for you. There are many things that we need to improve as a congregation. I'm going to resist listing them for you right now. But instead, I want to pass along to you some providentially timed encouragement. Friday evening, my phone rang just as I was thinking about all of this in preparation for this morning. My phone rang. It was one of you, actually. And what you told me was this. Roughly, you have experienced in and from this congregation recently such a great amount of love and care that it was hard for you to express. Especially right now in a very hard time for you. 
I'll tell you, my pastor's heart swelled to hear that news. And it makes me pray that, that we will be, that we will not only continue to be a congregation marked by love, but that each and every one of us, whatever our gifts, whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever we do, and at the rock bottom of everything we are and say and do here, we will be motivated by love. And that, as Paul writes in another of his letters, our love may abound more and more.